The roles of family and motherhood often take center stage when we talk about God and religious life. The members of our faith community become brothers and sisters. God acts like a mother in our holy stories. And Jesus teaches us to be a mothering presence to each other in his ministry. This is Logosish. Today, Reverend Leanne Pomrenke talks to us about family and motherhood in the spiritual life of Christianity with a special focus on clergy women. Her book is Embodied, Clergy Women and the Solidarity of a Mothering God. Hey guys, welcome back to Logosish. We have another exciting episode for you today. I am joined by co-hosts Sarah Relliford and Garrett Roca. How are you guys doing this morning, this evening? It is evening right now. I'm already messing up. <laughs> yeah, um, post-production is going to have a real tough time with this episode. But in dark or sunny Florida, uh, it's cold, guys. It's like actual winter weather. It's like the 40s, so like the Carolina winter, but we're doing good. Lots of lots of plans coming together for celebrating Christmas and Advent, so lots of running around for me. That's fantastic. I was speaking to my PCUSA pastor friend in Florida today, in Tampa. She's very close to you, actually, and uh, she said they've been opening the windows just to feel <laughs> some of the, the cool air. What about you, John? I'm just light and breezy all day long. I'm just enjoying how nice and cold it is outside and just just chilling in the most literal sense of that word. I got truly fantastic coffee this morning. Did you guys know they're now steeping milk in cookies or cookies in milk? I mean, I've been doing that since like, I don't know, the early 90s with Oreos. Do you want to plug the coffee? <laughs> Radio Coffee Roasters, Decatur, Georgia. Truly fantastic. Very exciting. They called it, I think, Santa's Milk and Cookies was the latte description. Okay. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's rosemary. It's obviously hot milk that has apparently somehow been filled with the essence, the, the core <laughs> essential essence of the chocolate chip cookie. And then paired with like a Brazilian espresso. So if you love coffee, it's a great place to go. And it would be awesome if they would sponsor us by giving us free <laughs> coffee. I'm shouting out into the void right now. Radio Coffee Roasters, are you listening? Yes, you would not believe it, but the small rural South Carolina town where we live does not have a great espresso scene. We did just get a Starbucks in the next town over, though. Well, two towns over, which is very exciting for us. So whenever we come to Atlanta, we like to get coffee. <laughs> Good story, Sarah. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump right in, guys. Are you guys ready for that? Uh, our guest today is author and pastor Leanne Pomrenke. Leanne, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. You know, um, it hit 50 degrees in Minnesota today, so sorry, Floridians. I don't know. Uh, I don't know you guys are experiencing a heat wave up there. Yeah, it's very up and down around here this winter. It's wild. That's every South Carolina winter. It, it seems like most days in South Carolina, it'll, it'll get cold in the evening, and then the next morning around 10, it's shorts weather again. Just straight on through. <laughs> Minnesota, 50 was the high. <laughs> Which is shorts weather in Minnesota, but yes. Uh, okay, yeah. See, we all have something in common. It's all relative. <laughs> there you go. This is becoming a weather podcast very quickly. <laughs> Isn't that your dream podcast, though? Yeah, I could, I could watch weather coverage all day. <laughs> so, Leanne, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Well, I have been ordained in the largest Lutheran denomination in the U.S., the ELCA, for 15 years now. And about half of that, I have also been a mother. I have served congregations in Northern Virginia, 
and Minneapolis and St. Paul. And um, for about the last five years, I've been doing interim work, which I don't know that the Methodists really do that because you move people all on the same day of the year, right? But uh, yeah. <laughs> in the Lutheran church, you can have a gap of like a year between pastors. Um, so I have been doing that kind of transitional work with churches, which I really love and offers great variety of context. And it's a good opportunity for congregations who haven't had a younger-ish woman pastor to have a good impression also. So I like to represent. Well so done. for about a year now, uh, 11 months now, I've been at All Saints Lutheran in Egan, Minnesota, which I will probably be for another month or so, but they're, they're getting close, getting close to calling their pastor. That's really so that's cool. what I do. Wonderful. I do pastoring and I write and I have two kids at home who are doing distance learning. <laughs> and I also uh, have some side gigs with Luther Seminary working with their um, the Faith Leader, which is their digital publication for continuing ed for church leaders. So those are my mini hats. Wow. You are very busy. Quite. Quite. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about your book because there are some. Uh, let's just dive right in. Um, <laughs> you write a little bit about the need for boundaries and um, Sabbath keeping. Uh, so, with all those hats you're wearing, are you still able to do that? I will say that for me, one of the biggest boundaries that I'm able to keep, even though my time boundaries are kind of all chaos right now, as they are for many of us who are working from home, emotional boundaries are key to getting this done and being able to let go of certain things to focus and record your sermon or not be bothered by something that's happening over here uh, because someone else needs the phone call. So keeping my attention and feelings in check is like a really important boundary for me right now. And it always is, right? But these are strange times. And so it's come to the come to the forefront right now. Yeah, that's really awesome. One of the things that back in the day when I had to do uh, uh, CPE or essentially be a <laughs> chaplain for people who don't know what that acronym is for a short bit over the summer, um, our supervisor said, you know, make sure you uh, establish good, strong boundaries. You don't want to bring uh, where you're serving home. And it worked really well while I was serving as a chaplain because I was constantly reminded of it. But, <laughs> you know, being in the midst of, of ministry and sometimes uh, that kind of dribbles over um, from one place to another. So. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, boundary yeah. keeping is, is, is a really hard thing. So I'm not, uh, writing multiple books either. So, <laughs> so in the beginning of embodied, you talk about this image of God in creation and it was the first real big aha moment for me. It was so beautiful where, um, where you're talking about, uh, the second creation story and, uh, how God is mothering in that. Would you, do you want to talk about that or explain it? Sure. or show? Okay. I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, it's funny. I, I kind of retell these stories so many times that I forget that the interpretation I'm offering is unusual. <laughs> and so, like I've gotten really used to this, but um, to talk about the creation story, not the second creation story, not as God is setting boundaries of you broke this rule and now you're out, but to focus instead on maybe this is the moment where God truly enters into an intimate parent-like relationship with humankind because not only is God saying, well, it is important that I hold these boundaries and keep the limitations that I've set, but I am going to, after you face the natural consequences of what you've done, 
mother you into a new life. Uh, so I, I would put the emphasis in that story on God's sewing clothes with God's own hands for humankind. Yes, you do have consequences for everything you do, but you also have this unbreakable relationship. And to me, that's a sign of that unbreakableness. It's just, uh, it's so beautiful. And it's the image of God sewing clothes with God's own hands is something that I, I feel like I've passed over so many times and never put any significance into. And uh, now I'll never read that piece of the story the same. <laughs> Don't you love it when books do that? That just makes me so happy. It's uh, it's wonderful. I don't want to jump around too much because there's a lot I want to cover. But where are some other images? What are other images of God as a mother in the Bible that resonate with you in particular and that you find particularly moving? Uh, well, I will say that I try to make this move in the book to talk about the verb mothering and kind of the actions instead of just the noun of mother, uh, because the scripture does not say all over the place, look here, God the mother. Uh, but in describing a lot of the actions of God, if you're familiar with all of the behaviors involved in mothering, you recognize that. So I recognize Jesus mothering quite a lot in the way that he spends time with people. You know, there's so many gaps in the scripture where they're walking from here to here. Well, that was a long time that he just spent just living life with people. And who knows what formative conversations happened, or maybe they walked in silence, but he was this constant presence for them. Um, and that's, gosh, that's a mothering thing, the constancy and the doing nothing that anybody's going to record or write about, but being there, <laughs> that's mothering. I also, in the Old Testament, I think a lot about kind of how God's like tries different things and relates to the people of Israel in different ways. And to me, that echoes kind of developing in your parenting. You know, I have two children and they're very different. And so what quote unquote works with one of them does not work with the other one. And we kind of change each other as we're trying to figure this thing out. And I could see God doing that in the Old Testament and evolving through the relationships, through the prophet's time, and then also taking a different approach with Jesus. So, you know, that's a totally different way of being in relationship, becoming in the flesh on the earth. Uh, so trying different things. Oh, and bargaining. I spend a lot of time talking about bargaining in this book. <laughs> because what do we do for most of our lives with these children? <laughs> it's negotiating. And God does indeed negotiate with God's people throughout scripture. Yeah, I think my favorite example of that is Moses, right? He's thinking of every, everything that he's like, oh yeah, I am not qualified for X, Y, and Z. And God is there, okay, well, I'll give you this. So you don't have anything to worry about. And then goes on down the list meeting Moses every single time. And then Moses is like, all right, fine, I'll do it. So yeah, definitely bargaining. <laughs> I've been uh -huh. bargaining a lot with, with my, uh, my parental figures. And I think too, um, there, there's a story with, well, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham. There's, there's no reason God should tell Abraham beforehand what God wants to do unless God wants to be talked out of it. Right. And so sometimes that's why you need, like your parenting friends to call up and say, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do with these children. Here's what I feel like doing. And then they kind of talk you down. <laughs> that's why you need your people around you. Even God does. Even God needs people to talk God out of it at times. 
I've been reading a lot about um, metaphors lately and um, the metaphors we use for God and uh, and just for church community and church life. And all metaphors break down at some point. Um, but one of the more interesting things uh, from your book was talking about how calling the church family, it on the surface appears very inclusive, but actually ends up being fairly exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is a separate book, but wanted to get it in here because so many, I've been almost exclusively in small congregations and so many of them use this metaphor and I I kind of bristle at it because I think, well, you're absolutely right. It is like a family, but maybe not only in the glowing positive ways that you're implying. <laughs> maybe it is also like a family in that it's really hard to get in um, or you're homogenous or you have to do the same thing the same way every year at this time or whatever the thing is. So one thing to do would be to embrace the metaphor that these congregations have for themselves and then push them on the limits. I'm just, gosh, I'm not gracious enough to do that well, I think. <laughs> but somebody, somebody should be doing that very careful, tactful work. I, I'm more of the one who's going to give you the article that proves your point. <laughs> so you can take it into the conversation and say, see, this is why this is not working here. We need to expand our metaphor. I've, I've fallen into that, that use of language as referring to church as the family um, or church as family. So, you know, considering what you said and how I treat that metaphor, it definitely can be pushed more. I definitely agree with that. I often say that our or, or or trying to be mindful when I when I say it. So I say our Lutheran brothers and sisters, since you know, or our oh. Catholic brothers and sisters, or our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, and try and push that. But also calling to, uh, and I use this often in sermons too, is calling the dysfunction of family out, and yeah. say that like just because we're a family, there's a lot rolled into that. Um, you know, there might be something you said to um, your brother or sister or mother or father that you feel guilty about or has changed the dynamic in such a way that is not easily fixed. So I don't know if that's an answer mm -hmm. to it, but uh, I'm always thinking back. I'm like, maybe I'm using this too much or wrong or maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about, but your remarks on it were, you know, really, really helpful. Well, if people are using the metaphor, then I think it's, it's fair game for the preacher. That's for sure. But then also to, to deconstruct it in some ways too, and say, Hey, look, the church has a mission beyond taking care of the ones inside and perpetuating ourselves. Like, mm -hmm. that's not really why we're here. Right. And, you know, I think especially in this era for the church, we need to emphasize the other things that the church is more like or could be more like or, or would be more like if it were healthier. Like the church is a movement or the church is a living organism or like a campus, a, a formative school, but then we expect people to transition on to somewhere else instead of like, you should come in and stay forever. <laughs> yeah, it really made me think a lot about what, because I use it, I lean on that metaphor so often and, and I'm in a, a very racially divided community. And, mm. um, and so thinking about how that might appear us in our our churches is almost exclusively caucasian and um we have many other races around us and so when you say this is a family and we all look alike here things as simple as physical discrepancies can make mm -hmm. someone feel like oh that that's not my family <laughs> um that that was really eye-opening for me 
Well, that's something I've learned from the adoptive families community uh, because we adopted our first daughter um, and we are not a, um, what's the word? We're, we're not a, an obvious adoptive family uh, because I am Polish and she is from Poland and we actually kind of resemble each other. But for many of our um, friends in the adoptive families community, they have to deal with insensitivity about that every day and questions about whether you belong to each other or not. And um, so when you have adoptive families in your congregation, I feel like that's an invitation with their permission to talk about belonging and what makes belonging. It's not just the assumption that because we all look alike, we are alike, but really it's about making a choice and opting in every day to creating belonging. Mm -hmm. That is what I've learned from these resilient families. I love it. As, as a, uh, a, a woman and a clergy person, how, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got like 20 questions that I'm trying to mesh into one. So maybe <laughs> I should just pick one out. Okay. How about this? Oftentimes I feel like though I am not a mother, I lean into the sort of tone and identity of mother to mm. give myself some authority where I might not otherwise be automatically granted it because I'm in a rural country parish. But at the same time, over the past couple of years, I've come to realize that sometimes that mothering presence um, is not always the best uh, best one for a pastor. Um, how have mm-hmm. you hit up against that and understood that? Tricky, isn't it? Because transference is real people and whether you um, could be associated with someone's mother or with their father or with any other figures in their life um, when you either act like or look like someone in that role people can just slip into the way that they relate to them sometimes i get uh, oh you remind me of my granddaughter (laughs) or or my daughter and that's a different kind of weird so i i feel like i am an embodied invitation to talk about these things and you know it happens enough to you that it's no longer funny but if you kind of chuckle about it and say now i know that i'm the same age as a lot of your kids but here's what we're learning in seminary these days or whatever the thing is. Yeah. Um, it's a way to say, I, I acknowledge what's happening here, but also we need to focus on the role that I'm in and what we're doing here. I, it's so tricky because you also want to use it in the other direction and say, you know, this is a relational job. And so if I had to, log my hours and give an account at every uh, council or board meeting about how many visits I've done or how I've done this, like, that's not, that's not going to work because that's not how this job goes. It's like being a mother. It's like, I'm thinking, and writing down furiously on little post-it notes everywhere, the things I have to remember to do, the people to check in on, the death anniversary that's coming up, the, you know, the, all those little things that you can't quantify or write in your time log, but that add up to people feeling cared for and you being trustworthy. So like in that way, Every pastor really does a lot of mothering, but, (laughs) you know, I, you cannot come to my house for Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's a very messy, blurry line there between how to have different relationships. And I think it was cleaner and clearer when there were only male clergy. And so some people appreciate that clean, clear 
delineation. But um, yeah, so now it's messier, but it's more creative. I definitely understand the, especially with the the age uh, aspect mm. of of that. And for some folks that I've served um, served with, served alongside of. You know, one of the things was it was cathartic for them. So, you know, just being present and that listening ear because they hadn't spoken to their grandchildren mm. for X number of years for, you know, a variety of reasons. So, like, it was a strange sort of invitation. But at the same time, it was like, yeah, I understand that I'm younger than your grandchildren by, like, <laughs> 10 years or so. But... I also make the, you know, you know, make the decisions on these things and you can't just kind of write me off because I am much younger than you. (laughs) So yeah, it's a, it's a strange, strange vocation. And and my wife, she has, she does not understand it. She's like, so you have to do all of this and this emotional stuff and these things. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And she's like, and you like doing that? She's 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 uh, studying philosophy, so very not no nonsense. But she's like, yeah, there should be a delineation between all these things. It's too messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We- I don't know of any other career fields, jobs. That's not even the right word. But um, you know, there are many many people who are definitely in their callings who are not serving in any kind of church work. But even when you are called to be a teacher or a medical professional, there are more clear boundaries between you or your family and the place where you work. It's a messy existence, we <laughs> this vocation yeah. we have. And it's especially tricky when you live in their house. <laughs> Ooh, right. Yeah. Yes, the parsonage. Yeah, Ooh, or yeah. especially if it's next door to the church. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the same property as the church. <laughs> the actually the the preschool playground is right up against my backyard. <laughs> wow. So it's, it's strange. <laughs> really strange. And um I, I had a very brief, but a first career before ministry in the seminary. And um, yeah, it it seems so strange now, like having defined weekends and like <laughs> a time when you, you just worked when you were at work. <laughs> and every once in a while, you might get a call from your boss if something was really crazy. But I mean, it, it can really feel like we are on call 24 hours a day. And yet have incredible freedom during that time to right. go in the middle of the day to do something else. And yeah, I've written a couple articles since the pandemic about you all are discovering this for the first time, like working from home and the work never stops and all of this. But some of us have been doing this for <laughs> a lot longer, you know, like, yeah, I bring my kids to my work, like like they're there on Sunday when I'm doing my most important thing of the week. And yeah, it's messy, but it's also part of your witness, your vocation. Anyway, I don't want to do this forever, this whole pandemic thing. I just think, you know, there are some, some people who have some insight given previous experience about working well parenting and everything else. Let's talk about embodiment. What does embodiment mean to you and how is it significant to the job of clergy or even to Christians generally? Well, I would say that to have an embodied practice or an embodied existence means that you are striving to be whole. You are not separating the spiritual from the physical or or your emotional from yeah, it's kind of like this whole messy thing of being a pastor, right? Everything kind of relates to each other and impacts the other parts of you. So I can't just be a pastor. I am, I personally am always going to show up as a woman pastor. And 
I am always going to probably preach in a way that a mothering pastor does. And that doesn't mean I'm saying the same thing every time, but our experiences shape us and the bodies we live in shape us. So we don't try to hide any of those pieces of ourselves, but we honor all of them and say, this is all fully part of who I am, who God made me to be. And so it has a worthwhile part to play in how I live out this vocation. And I think one of the things that, that I've seen a lot, especially with like older male pastors is the tendency to compartmentalize or the want to do that and say, you know, my nine to five job is here at the office or, you know, this is, this is definitely a thing that your mother can do and I'm going to be hands off with it. How would you challenge younger pastors like myself to really embrace that embodiment and like, you know, or, or lead them to like seeing it as a beneficial thing rather than trying to keep, keep everything nice and tidy? Well, I think when you mention younger pastors, I mean, the church is at a, a crucial point of change right now and to embrace your youth and the access that it gives you to having your finger on the pulse of the culture. You know, you are likely going to be the youngest adult in your congregation and like reporting in from the culture is an important role to the older generations about not just like, here's how you need to change, but here's, here's how we are seeking meaning outside of these walls, or here's, here's what's going on on Twitter that I find really interesting and don't know what to do with. Have you heard of Twitter? <laughs> you know, like bringing conversations from your own experience, your own generation into places, spaces where people will not have heard them otherwise, I think is a key role of younger people as it is a key role of women. Like it should just be written into the ordination vows of women. Like one of your jobs here is to fight sexism in the church. That's just who you are. It's part of your embodied experience. Similarly for people of color in predominantly white churches, mm -hmm. part of their job ends up being addressing white supremacy. Because of who you are, these are things you'll be called on to do because of the body you show up in. Yeah, yeah. I've had to have several of those introductory conversations with some church members about white supremacy as well. And they're uh -huh. like, well, I'm not personally racist. I'm like, I know, I understand. <laughs> it's much yep. bigger, not, not to be mean, but it's much bigger than, than you. But at the mm -hmm. same time, doesn't mean we don't we we don't have a responsibility towards it mm -hmm. so <laughs> yeah. yeah and people would would like to make you an exception would say well you know i really like you and so that's your in right there you know i mean i oh my goodness this is a funny story my internship was in northeast montana um the part of the state that looks like north dakota and it's just flat for miles. And um, after a funeral, I had this old codger come up to me and say, well, I don't believe in women preachers, but you're okay. <laughs> and I thought, what's to believe in? I'm right here, you know? <laughs> but if it's your, you have an in, then you can talk about these things that, you know, are obvious topics for conversation because you're the case study mm -hmm. it's access and that's a gift even though it's a challenge you know this may be a little bit of uh an abrupt transition but i think it bridges kind of nicely into this conversation about the way in which a pastor's identity shapes the way they interact with their congregation mm -hmm. but in the book you talk quite a bit about 
pastors who have kind of a second vocation, some kind of additional purpose. And one of the questions you ask or sort of invite the reader to imagine is, what would it be like if churches and organized religious structures made a little more room for the individuality and the individual call of their clergy or otherwise like professional, you know, sort of individuals. And it came in the context of the unseen things that people do, mm-hmm. the unseen efforts that pastors put in. So I was wondering if you could kind of reflect a bit upon that. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two chapters there that, um, I had a lot of trouble in the editing separating them out because they're very related. But the first is talking about divided attention. And we tend to be jealous of not having someone's full attention. I would like my mother's full attention or I, the church needs the pastor's full attention. But if we don't have the full attention, then that teaches us something too. Maybe it teaches us something theological, you know, that we are not all there is. Uh, maybe we, we as Christians don't have uh, the only grasp on God's attention. Golly, there's a theological <laughs> claim. But if, if the pastor can do other things also, like, for example, your pastor has a sideline of writing a book or something not totally related to ministry, but your pastor has a life-giving side hustle that makes them happy, and therefore it's good for you, too, because that promotes sustainability and longevity in your place. I think it's healthy for everyone all around, and acknowledging the huge balancing act of people who are parenting and working at the same time is like, well, there's your built-in example of divided attention because there is always going to be a conflict between that meeting and that band concert or whatever the thing is. But the ability to make decisions that are not cut and dried but that have to be negotiated all the time, that's just, that's relational ministry. Um, so we, we want church leaders that are skilled at this graceful negotiation of relational things, I suppose. So that's the divided attention thing. And uh, with the unseen details, we, uh, I think the other part of that chapter is something about scrutiny because there's this dichotomy in the life of a public figure like the pastor where people are kind of always watching they're very interested you know and if you get married it's like it was the church's wedding you know like they kind of own this kind of like a family again or if there's a, a child brought into your family, like that's the church's baby right there. There's kind of a, it's like some kind of surrogate grandparents or something. There's, there's uh, some ownership of your family unit. But then there's also so many things that you do that nobody notices, right? Or... <laughs> There are things that you do because nobody else even sees them to take care of them. I think of a lot of building maintenance in churches. That's, that's part of your job description. If you're in a small church and there's not like a custodian or sexton, I mean, the pastor has to unplug the toilet before worship can start. I mean, there's just, there's a whole myriad of, of small things. I loved your image of the pastor cleaning out the refrigerator when it gets too gross, which yep. I have helped Sarah <laughs> do. I've never had to do it myself, but like. Well, you're the one that spends the most time there. I mean, don't you live at the church? So clearly yeah. you should be the one to clean the fridge. Isn't it next to your house, John? <laughs> no, pastors only work on Sundays, Garrett. <laughs> I mean, I had to uh run and like uh set up uh ethernet cable at at the church because 
our building got struck and they didn't know how to do it. I'm like, ah, I can figure it out. And so, yeah, I had to learn how to uh, run and cap Ethernet cord from like one building to another. It was it was an interesting morning. And uh, the church member that I, that helped me, he's like, well, I don't know about you, but I was like, trust me, it's going to work. They don't teach you this in seminary, but YouTube is a great, is the best professor, I find. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's little acts of like, not just care for the church building, but I mean, this is related, but, uh, and if it's too gross, we can cut it out, but <laughs> no, it's got to stay in now. <laughs> a, a couple of weeks ago, a couple who hasn't been to church because of COVID with, they came, they wore masks, they sat in the very, very back. And I went and kind of stood distant from her and talked. And she said, I can't, I can't stay because I have bathroom issues. You know, it's, it's, I have to go to the potty too much. Um, oh, and she can't walk well. And as she was walking away, um, I saw that she had maybe wet her pants and then, but she, and then looked and she, there was like a, you know, so I didn't do anything while people were there, but then came in Monday morning and the secretary, bless her heart, helped me like, you know, get carpet cleaner <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and we kind of were just, we were not laughing at her, but just laughing at ourselves, cleaning, like, this is the stuff nobody knows we do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's, I mean, there's relational stuff that we do that nobody knows, too, of trying to, you know, I noticed there was friction between those people. And so I'm just going to go chat with each of them individually and see what's up and, you know, see if there's something going on or oh, gosh, I noticed we haven't seen them in a while. I should look into that. I mean, these are the the things that are never going to show up on a list, but boy, if someone tends to them, things just go much smoother. So it's hard to get up to speed on that when you're new, and it's hard to pass that on when you leave, too. So so I'm an advocate for like trying to systematize and give away some of those unseen tasks um, because I should, in the nicest possible way, be replaceable. <laughs> you know, like your church should not implode when your pastor leaves. That's one of the reasons I really like being a transitional pastor is that I know they're not going to depend on me to that level. And that works for me. Uh, but there are many, many people who like really value being needed. And so then they don't make a plan to give to give all of those tasks away or just even a, a list of grief anniversaries or whatever the things are that you might want to know this. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, especially with your role as a as an interim or no transitional pastor. Sorry. Either word. Yeah. Yeah, I think the I think that's a really cool concept, and Methodist Church would I think could benefit for that, um, especially with you know in in the case when there's like a long term pastor and then they leave and. You know, no one knew that they were spending 80 hours working on things and then the new person gets there and everything seems to fall apart within the first like couple of weeks and everyone's upset. And there was just nothing in place to kind of take those, those small things into account. And, you know, I'm new at my church uh, since this last July and uh, my predecessor, he did a lot of stuff and he was really awesome and loved. But like it was all those little tiny responsibilities that he kind of accumulated at over like five years. And then I came in and like the first month or so during a pandemic, we were all discovering all of the things that that were not being taken care of. And people were like, well, why didn't this happen? I'm like, I don't even know exactly what that is at the moment. Uh, <laughs> well, why is that important? How can we address this? Yeah, I think having that ability to pass on those little monotonous things, those, those not super important uh, or glorified responsibilities of a pastor. Um, I think 
allows allows folks to really like take hold of their church and cherish it in a different way. Yeah. And that I think that's that's healing and lasting. And I definitely agree with you that trying to uh, put myself out of a job I think is one of the best things for for a pastor to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Leading leading folks to not only care for the church but the mission of the church too. Yeah, I think that's a reason why even if you're not leaving going on sabbatical after five to seven years or maternity or paternity leave can be construed as a gift. This is a chance for the church to really live into the fullness of their own witness. You know, you, uh, the pastor should not ever be the only one who makes pastoral care calls. Let's divide that up. Mm-hmm. Who is taking you know, devotional books to the people in the nursing home. Oh, is that only the pastor? Oh, dear. Well, let's work on that. Um, So when there is a gap, uh, whether it's short term or longer, it's, it's a good wake up call for all of us. And I imagine there's always, I think, some level of grief when a, a pastor transitions away from the church. And those sort of little things can can add to that grief. And Leanne, I'm, I'm guessing you do a lot of grief work as a as a transitional interim minister. Yeah, well, every congregation is different, of course. And I mean, there's layers to things, right? There's also the grief of realizing that this is a different church than it was 20 years ago when Pastor So and So started here. And so we are looking for a different kind of pastor than we were when we did that search committee or which, you know, it's different in different denominations, how that works. But the self-realization is another layer of grief beyond just, we really miss them. Yeah. It's all complicated. (laughs) I really signed up for this job for its ease and the working one day a week like John does, but. (laughs) <laughs> we come in like almost every day so oh, i don't know how you get your gig john but let me know it's just a lot of confidence <laughs> and a lot of poise improvisational skills really help <laughs> and it's all about just coordinating your volunteers with utter perfection getting those like sort of key three organizers you realize at this point that i'm just totally bullshitting <laughs> I hope so anyways. If any of my church people are listening to this, one, I hope they forgive me for the language I'm using because <laughs> they might there be a little stressed by that. Um, I I can go ahead and say John works way too much. <laughs> um, and uh, But part of being a clergy couple is um, sort of helping each other be accountable for our time and calling each other out when we need to take a step back. Um, it doesn't always work well, but <laughs> at least. Yeah, someone who gets it is really, really key to uh, accountability. Oh, yes. It is, um, I have a couple of clergy girlfriends who we have just a running text chain, and I don't know what I would do without them. Um, I think all clergy need peers uh, for sure, but uh, mm-hmm. there's something... I think especially clergy women need need clergy women friends who who get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely, well, solidarity, right? That's what we need to stay in this. Really, Sarah, do do you know about the Young Clergy Women International? About that organization? Yes, and I would I I need to get more involved in that. An Episcopal priest friend directed me towards that last year, and I think I went and signed up and have been not active in any other way because life is really, <laughs> really crazy. But I, I, I need to, for sure. I, I definitely am involved in a, a new United Methodist Women's Clergy group has just popped up. And uh, yeah, where people can kind of share their stories. And I have not shared anything yet because there are also we've had incidences I'm not going to say where or in which conference but where um, people in leadership who are also women in these groups have kind of reported 
Ah. <laughs> so, yes. no, it's just, it's good to have very close, small friends. Well, you right. know, too, if you're not listening, if you're not plugged in, there's a weird sort of little void that void of obliviousness that that as a male clergy person you can kind of wander on through and just be totally clueless and sarah comes in with stories and i'm like no way like <laughs> you know and she's had to stop me from like going over to the church a couple of times and having some words some very stern words with some very fragile old men mm-hmm and it's part of the job, right, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, just, yep. uh, you have to be very careful in how you respond to, to certain things because uh, they're, I don't know, in some cases uh, you were expected to respond some way. And, uh, I respond with rage. <laughs> but then I would be called hysterical. So <laughs> right. there's got to be a measured... Um, so I can, I can respond. Oh gosh. I want to be very, I don't, I don't think many, if any of my parishioners listen to this, but just, you know, someone who did not belong to my church once <laughs> was at the church for a group meeting and I was there being sort of pastor and, um, I, you know, I, he was a sweet little old man, but he just kept saying like, oh, you're here to wash the dishes. <laughs> and and like trying to hand me kitchen towels, which is one of the like least offensive things that has ever happened. But mm -hmm. I mentioned it in a CPE group with male clergy and they were like, why didn't you stop him? Why, why didn't you, you know, step up and tell him that was wrong in front of everybody? And I was like, well, I was in a group of Baptist men who don't necessarily recognize my authority. So I had to act in a way that was like, like, I'm the pastor. I'm here to be the pastor, but in a way that isn't, you know, like I, like I can't take a joke or um, it's just, it's right. just a, it's a balance. So instead I texted my clergy girlfriends and are like this stuff. Oh my gosh, you guys. So there's a whole chapter in the book on emotional labor, which is what you're describing. <laughs> Right. It's the idea that it is part of your job that you have to do to be perceived to be doing your job well to hide your feelings. But also you have to have genuine feelings and be perceived as very authentic. So good luck with that. But you don't want to offend anyone. But you also have to push the boundaries because people need to be stretched and, you know, Jesus wants us to love the whole world, so we need to keep pushing the boundaries. So there's there's a lot, a lot of emotional pull in all directions. Yeah. And then if if your spouse is criticized or your children are the topic of conversation or your car is rusty or whatever the thing is, I mean, it's like, okay, well, so now I have feelings about this that I need to manage. But now I also have feelings about the church. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't have any answers. I just am kind of naming that these things are part of the labor and the emotional drain for which you need time to recover. So part of the work of being in relational ministry is your own resilience work, not just, you know, so that you don't burn out, but for the good of the community too. And that's not easy to put on a time card. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. No. And uh, I, I know plenty of people, including ones I'm very close to, uh, like uh, people of color, like Garrett, who have been in, churches that do that same sort of emotional labor. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there are a lot of pragmatic decisions that get made and it's a, sometimes a real sacrifice mm -hmm. to say, I'm going to shout about this at another time mm -hmm. uh, because I am so frustrated and then work to one, both be loving and present, but also 
aware of how people tend to move in inches rather than have breakthroughs. Yeah. Sorry, Garrett, I didn't mean to speak for you before. I just, uh, I don't know. No, no, it's fine. No, I understand that. So yeah, it's just a lot of um, measured response and emotional investment and sort of navigating what battles you kind of want to pick. And, and um, at least from my experience, it's looking very far ahead and, and seeing like, okay, I kind of want to move in this direction. And like, what, what can I not necessarily sacrifice or like, what can I kind of push aside or put on the back burner for now to at least get to the next step? And, you know, in, in some congregations, it was like every single conversation um, in another conversation or in other congregations that I've served. And it only kind of came up once. And I had a lot more, I had a larger stage to kind of voice my opinions, which was, which was interesting because people were really wanting to hear um, and sort of understand. So, you know, it, it just kind of depends. So yeah, that I understand in a very real way the 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 emotional labor, uh, at least from my position. And it's sometimes when you lose your temper, at least maybe some people don't. <laughs> I've lost my temper in a couple of meetings and just gone home kicking myself. Like, oh, I I feel like I let down not just you know my own personal self, but like all women clergy everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> when I lose my temper in a meeting. <laughs> and there is something very powerful, I think, about giving yourself permission to kind of shake the dust off your shoes and move on. Yes. And recognize <laughs> that ultimately uh, your job is pastoral and not to, what was the, the saying you got from your con ed class at Candler? Oh, uh, the job of savior has already been filled. Ah, <laughs> it's a it's a good it's a good thing to remind myself of or ministers to remind themselves of it's really hard when you have a sweet little old lady comes like thank you for coming to save our church (laughs) (laughs) oh i think you're looking for jesus (laughs) right i'm like well praise the lord we've already been saved (laughs) she looked at me kind of funny (laughs) this has been an absolutely delightful uh, conversation. Um, I, I just noticed the time and how long we've been talking and wow. <laughs> yeah. So Leanne, every week, especially during COVID, we try to end just by kind of reflecting on what's bringing us joy right now, what we're grateful for. Uh, and I'd like to extend that question to you. What is bringing you some life, some joy, some happiness in this present moment? You know, um, One of the things that I love about being a preacher is that that moment where you figure out where the sermon is going, like that moment of inspiration where you're like, ah, that's the angle. And I feel like that's happened a couple times outside of preparing a sermon um, and outside of pastoring even. Where I'm with my kids and there's a moment where I think, this is how we're going to be okay. Or this is how we're going to get out of 2020 (laughs) relatively unscathed. Or here's, this is, this is the angle, the kernel that we have. And one of the places that I've discovered that the most is in um, colleagues in the faith writer community. So not only are there pastors, but there are pastors who write. Mm -hmm. And to be able to lift each other up is just a gift. So I'm just thankful for those people and I'm thankful for the moments of inspiration. That's the joy for me. How about yourselves? Mine is nothing so deep. I'm just uh, really excited to have discovered the Bruce Lee podcast. Uh, which is done by Shannon Lee, his daughter, and it's bringing me so much joy right now. Sarah is rolling her eyes so hard right now. No, I'm not. 
but I'm having a lot of fun. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just seems like the coolest guy. And if we get the chance, I think we should have him on as a guest. I don't know how we're going to make that happen. Again, this is one of those things that I'm just kind of shouting out into the void. If you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, let's make it happen. Um, yeah, uh, last week I talked about uh, some of the talks at SBL that I was really enjoying, and I, I felt so sophisticated and theological. This week, um, I'm going to say the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> We've watched a lot of that, so the new season is wonderful. We can talk about the Dairy Girls are on there. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> that is the episode we're going to watch right after we finish we're this. We're not caught up. Yeah. We... <laughs> the... I love the Dairy Girls. The The stakes are just right <laughs> in that there are no stakes. <laughs> but yeah, so good. Uh, Garrett, what's going on? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's just a party over here. Uh, what's giving me life? Well, my... Uh, our good friends, they're uh, they're getting married on Friday, and they want me to do the ceremony in our backyard. Um, and it's really awesome. They're friends that Laurel had met through her PhD program, um, and they're not overly religious at all. And they wanted me to to you know combine it with our socially distanced uh, Christmas party that we're we're holding. So. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm just excited about that and um, just hanging out with friends that we hadn't seen in person in a long time. So we've had lots of game nights and things like that, but it's just, it's different when you have people uh, in the same room. And I don't think any, any of the couples have like really gone out except for maybe the store in the past three months, like to prepare just to make sure. So hmm. We're going to, they're thinking about trying it out. Otherwise it'll be over soon and we'll figure it out. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Leanne. The book is Embodied Clergy Women and the Solidarity of a Mothering God. Where can people find you if they want to check out more of your work or just want to hang out with you <laughs> on the internet in virtual form? Right on. Uh, the easiest place to find me is my website that is my name leannepomrinke.com and i've got a publications page on there where you can click on the different articles from different places and i blog about once a month but that's a good jumping off point right there excellent well I, it's a wonderful book not just for clergy women but for i think all clergy and also uh, mm -hmm. lay leadership in the church and lay people it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful read and an important one for anyone who's involved in church uh, life. So thank you so much for chatting with us. It has been an absolute thank delight. You. And uh, we'll... Wonderful to be invited. Thank you very much. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod or on any of the other social media platforms. Please like, subscribe, review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get noticed and get the word out about all the cool stuff that we are working on. And we always love feedback as well. So have a great week.